Oh, I didn't mean to frighten you prematurely. <laughs> the real chills come later. Now, as they say, look alive, and we'll continue our little tour. Do not pull down on the safety bar, please. I will lower it for you. The happy haunts have received your sympathetic vibrations and are beginning to materialize. They're assembling for a swinging wake. And they'll be expecting me. I'll see you all a little later. W Hello, my friend, and welcome to the WDW Radio Show, your Walt Disney World information station. I am your host, Lou Mangello, and this is show number 492, and I'm here once again not only to help you have the best possible vacation experience when you come to the parks, but I also want to bring you a little bit of Disney magic every week with the podcast, videos, blog, live broadcasts on Facebook every Wednesday night, my books, audio tours, special events, and more. You can find everything over at www.radio.com. The story of how Walt Disney's first idea for a haunted house in Disneyland came to become the legendary Haunted Mansion is a long, circuitous one and reads like a Hollywood movie. It's filled with mystery, suspense, a cast of interesting and often conflicting characters, laughter, a little bit of magic, and a payoff at the end that still entertains and thrills guests decades later. So this week, to celebrate the anniversary of one of Disney's most legendary and time-tested attractions, we're going to go back to the very beginning of how the concept of the attraction came to be, its many stages, stories, players, secrets, troubles, and how it eventually became the haunted mansion we know and love. I'll then have the answer to our last Walt Disney World trivia question of the week, and I'll pose a new challenge for your chance to win a Disney prize package. Then stay tuned to the end of the show. I'll have some updates, information, and announcements about upcoming events, as well as your voicemails. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this week's episode of the WDW Radio Show. story? Well, let's see. Once upon a time, there was this magical place called Disneyland, and inside Disneyland, there was a strange, deserted mansion. Then one day, the mansion became haunted by 999 ghosts. Oh! And now humans can visit the haunted mansion and get real scared. Daddy, do you believe in humans? I don't know, but I do believe in Disneyland. We're going to bring ghosts from all over the world, but we haven't got the ghosts in there yet. We're out collecting the ghosts, and we're making it very attractive to them, hoping, you know, they'll want to come and stay at Disneyland, so we're putting in wall-to-wall cobwebs, and we guarantee them creaking doors and creaking floors. Shh. Listen. Three words. Welcome, foolish mortals. Maybe some of the most recognized, familiar, and for people like me, 
Favorite quotes and sounds of Walt Disney World and Disneyland. For me, it evokes a sense of nostalgia, excitement, and yes, even a little bit of happiness. And for many attractions in the Disney parks, getting from concept to reality for a lot of them is a, is a long, circuitous, and sometimes even difficult road. And I think one of the best examples of such a struggle and journey and payoff at the end was Walt's idea to take you into a moldering sanctum of the spirit world with his haunted house idea for Disneyland. And with the anniversary of the Haunted Mansion opening in Disneyland this month, I thought it would be the perfect time to look back at just how the Haunted Mansion came to be from Walt's initial concepts to what it eventually grew and really sort of morphed into. And our tour begins here, and not just with me, but with someone who for many years has been really one of the most foremost authorities on the mansions, plural. He is the creator of DoomBuggies.com, the author of the unauthorized story of Walt Disney's Haunted Mansion, a fellow podcaster over at Nostalgia. Um, I was an early fan of the Doom Buggy site like from the late 90s, and I knew him then only as Chef Mayhem. I know him now as Jeff Bam, and I want to welcome him finally, after all these years, to the show in his corruptible mortal state. <laughs> Thanks, Lou. Yeah, it has been since the 90s. I, I, yeah, I remember sharing some emails with you. So, um, yeah, yeah, wow. I remember talking passed. to you about, because I loved the design of the Doom Buggy site. I mean, at the time, it really was one of the most beautiful sites, still is, but, you know, it was so sort of uh, progressive in terms of web design and UI and UX kind of thing. And we talked about, you know, web development kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, going way, way back. So yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And every time I've <laughs> seen you, I always say we've got to do a show together about haunted mansion. And so it's only taken about nine years to finally <laughs> make it happen. And here we are, uh, 48 years after the haunted mansion <laughs> opened. So a, a fitting month. You're right. Yeah. Yeah. So just very quickly, cause look, I, I've always sort of known and thought of you as like the haunted mansion guy. Can you quickly tell us about you and where your love fascination, passion, unhealthy obsession with the mansion came from? <laughs> Absolutely. You know, uh, well, I'm a monster kid, right? I was born in the 60s, late 60s, but in the 60s. And I, and I kind of had that famous monsters, monster movies on TV, monster matinee thing going on. So I, I was a big monster kid, Halloween fan. I think it kind of comes from that. I had a lot of haunted house records. My parents bought the Disneyland haunted house record and the haunted mansion storybook record. So that really is kind of the genesis of the haunted mansion fandom. I, I, as far as Disney goes, I'm probably more a, a collector and then of Disneyana and then also kind of a fan of Disney and imaginary history in general, probably more than only the Haunted Mansion, but but the Haunted Mansion definitely obviously is a focus. And uh, a large part of that is, like I said, my um, my my monster kid childhood. And another part of it is I, I just, you know, I had collected some Haunted Mansion stuff and websites were becoming a thing. And and I'm an art uh, artist and I had graduated from art school like the year before they required you to, to get your degree with some computers. So I had right. no computer <laughs> training at all. So I thought I better learn this website stuff, you know, so everyone else was making, you know, pages for their favorite band or their favorite pet. I chose my favorite ride, which is the Haunted Mansion. And that's where Doom Buggies kind of began. And and I love that, you know, being able to share your passion for something that, like a lot of us, you know, our, our passion sort of grow as a kid and you were able to take that and create something um, that not only helped satisfy your 
uh, just love of the attraction in the parks. But really, for so many people, like I said, I think Doom Buggies really is, is still the de facto website when it comes to anything and everything about it. And I think maybe, look, I, I'm like you. I, I not only love the history and the details and the stories, but I think there's so much that so many of us love about the mansion. And I think part of that is a little bit of the mystique. Right? I think there's more myths about this attraction than probably any other one in the Disney parks. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, it, it kind of is a natural thing because they built the Haunted Mansion. I mean, they built the building right in 1963 before it was it was sitting there for what five six years before they even opened the ride so you know people didn't know back then oh well they're still in development oh well they needed to stop to make the new york world's fair attraction you know people didn't quite understand what was going on it you know there's a building so it must be done it must be ready to go in so why can't we go in well that's where the myths start well it was so scary that someone had a heart attack and died in there or you know all these things start happening and the yeah the myths began fast and furious so uh yeah and it's interesting that, that those myths start so early on when there was no communication. You know, there were no cell phones. There was no Internet. There was no Twitter. There was no Facebook. So there was no way. That was literally just a word of mouth kind of thing that grew out of this building that had been sitting there closed for so long. And it's fascinating that, you know, so many years later, there's there's still talk about that, those early myths um, and, and some of those early legends. Uh, and I think... There's look with, with with something like the mansion. There's so much to cover, right? You know, it really had um, this 14 year journey from concept to the building to it. It finally um, opened before it finally opened, and I think we we've talked about some of um, we know about some of these odd different ideas that came together trying to align you know funny and scary and and internal struggles but sort of let's let's go back a little bit to the very beginning right when there was no new orleans square right when this is really something that started back in the the, the early 50s and it really came from Walt himself, you know, who wanted to have this idea and maybe was sort of um, capitalizing on the, the, you know, the haunted houses that were so popular in the 50s. But let's talk, Jeff, before we even get to what this mansion ended up becoming, some of those early concepts that made it onto but maybe never off the drawing board. Yeah, you know, you're you're. You're right about Walt wanting that haunted house there from even before Disneyland. You know, when he when he had that that big map everyone heard about selling a couple months ago of that Herb Ryman drew of Disneyland. Even on that on the main street at the end there, there was a little kind of a haunted house building that that um, was put in there, you know, from the beginning of the concept of Disneyland. So Walt always wanted some kind of haunted house. I think he had in mind. You know, a small town has has the drugstore, has the, you know, the lingerie store, has the organ shop. And it also has like that house on the hill that no one wants to, you know, go to because it's haunted. Right. So I think he always had that in mind. But the earliest stories when it really started to flesh out um, kind of focused on the New Orleans area that he wanted to put into Disneyland off of Frontierland. So kind of over there by where the Jungle Cruise is, um, where, actually where Indiana Jones is, they were going to – New Orleans Square as as it was planned in the earliest stages in 1957 was going to kind of curve through there. And that's where the Haunted House originally was going to going to be placed. And so um, some of those early concepts kind of mix the, the New Orleans mystique and the bayous um, with the idea of this, this haunted – house you know in conjunction with pirates and 
you know, the pirate exhibit. So it all was kind of a blended situation in the earliest um, iterations. Yeah, I mean, it seems from the very beginning, it never, it always had trouble sort of figuring out what it wanted to be, right? So Marvin Davis, the initial concept, this old house on the hill, and then he starts talking to Ken Anderson about this idea of a ghost house, right? Back when they used to be called illusioneers before they were imagineers, uh, Sam McKinn starts doing this idea of uh, a rundown mansion. And then it is sort of the mid to mid to late 50s that he assigns the project specifically to Ken Anderson, right? Uh, who, you know, from uh, Cinderella and Jungle Book and Aristocats did a lot of um, sketches for Disneyland, was an architect and an illustrator and a story guy as well. And he's really one of the guys that started with this idea of building it in sort of this this New Orleans theme, taking it away from the Main Street, you know, decrepit house on the hill, which was not, which would probably not what Walt wanted people to see as soon as they walked into his beautiful new park was this, you know, rundown mansion on a side street. <laughs> um, so let's sort of, once they decided to put it over there, even the attraction itself had not just differing ideas of what it should be and the storyline, but even what the attraction should be itself. You know, before they even came up with the concept of Omnimovers, they wanted this to be a walkthrough. Yeah, yeah. So Ken Anderson back in 57, which I think is when he really early 57 was really starting on this. He so he did a few things. He um, he and Sam McKim, like you said, were kind of trying to figure out what's it going to look like, you know, and, and they still were kind of at the beginning, they were kind of set on kind of a boxy, kind of standard haunted house kind of a thing. Um, but he was going out and doing some uh, some research. He went to the Winchester Mystery House. Um, I don't think for the haunted aspect, more for the idea that it's a, a mansion that gave tours at the time. So I think he wanted to figure out, you know, how does this work? If we're going to give tours in Disneyland of a mansion, you know, how do other people do it? And I, I really Crump has told me that um, they went also to Hearst Castle because that's another big mansion that gives tours. So they were kind of trying to check how, how many, how big can tours be? How do people behave in these kind of tours? Um, so, so he was doing that research, you know, you know, and they were trying to figure out how can we put this into a, you know, a building on the side of New or this New Orleans area that we want to build, but we also want to have this pirate display. And, um, so he he first came up with the idea of building kind of a house you can see, but hiding some of the building with um, trees and shrubbery, but having a show building that went out beyond the berm, which they do now with the Haunted Mansion also and, and also Pirates of the Caribbean. But they but he was first coming up with that idea for his earliest Haunted Mansion, you know, his haunted house idea. Um, I think, yeah, you're so many ideas and plans were in Ken Anderson's various um, plans. Yeah, I think he made more than a dozen different story revisions for his haunted house in 1957 before um, he finally stopped working on it. But um, I think the earliest one involved pirates, the Captain Gore, right? You've heard, mm. maybe you've heard the Captain Gore story. And um, he, it was basically going to follow the story of a captain that had killed his wife and his, his bride's ghost was haunting him through the house until he finally hangs himself at the end and you walk out and then you have a last little shock scene with the, the ghost bride, right? And then you leave the house. Um, I think that was his earliest way of trying to figure out how is this going to work and what are we going to, what kind of story are we going to tell and how can we tie it in with the pirates wax museum that we're going to build in new Orleans. And this is all kind of under underneath this facade of this beautiful French quarter of new Orleans with hustle and bustle and jazz bands and, you know, and, um, 
fancy stores and whatnot. So, you know, you could feel them starting to figure out the drama here, you know, the light and the dark, the hustle and bustle of New Orleans, but then the underbelly when you walk into this wax museum and see the pirates and then you walk around the corner, go into this haunted house, right? So I think that's kind of what they were, what Ken Anderson was picturing at the very beginning of his, uh, his plans to put this area together. Yeah, and, and the whole Captain Gore, the, you know, the sea captain and his fiance Priscilla and the wedding, and, you know, he really had sort of flushed that idea out and created a story that the, um, that the building, that the, the mansion, the entire uh, attraction would really sort of revolve around. And there was early concept art of, you know, this dead woman in the wedding dress and, and Captain Gore who, who had hung himself. And how does it go from... You know, this idea to there was also I, I saw a um, uh, Tony Baxter had done sort of a, a, a discussion and, and walkthrough that there was actually a scene that they were going to have. Like when this was going to be a walkthrough attraction, guests would sort of be would go from room to room and they would enter this chamber. The wind would blow the doors open in would come this boat with the sea captain on it who would tell his entire backstory of the mansion and his his dead wife Priscilla and the the captain would dissolve into a puddle on the floor that would eventually disappear and he says that supposedly the effect was amazing but the problem is this room would only hold 10 15 people and it would take like 2 minutes or so which in in theme park time is like an eternity right um for the effect to actually take place but that's sort of where when you go in either the Disneyland or Disney World mansion there is remnants of that where you see the painting of the sea captain from that original concept art um, in the hallways when you first you know enter the attraction. Yeah, you, you know Ken Anderson in his in his version of these haunted houses, he always had this grand scene. You'd walk into a parlor and um, there was one room at the end of the house where you'd you'd walk in and there'd be you know these windows out to the graveyard or in in the earliest versions like Tony was saying out to the bayou. And um, it was like a cyclorama effect he created. So he could make this big room with a big backdrop and all kinds of special effects going on in there, right? And so the earliest version was going to have a ghost ship, you know, come in and then some some type of special effect with the pirate happening in in that scene. Um, he kept that idea through the various versions of the haunted house that he came up with. Later on, he turned it into, well, what if the headless horseman comes riding through after they had kind of, when they moved past the, the pirate's idea, right? And, and so you were asking, like, how does it move from this Captain Gore and this Grim, I'm hanging myself, and, you know, how does that move into, you know, some of these other ideas? And actually, you know, Captain Gore hanging himself, that's that's one of the things that kind of, lasted all the way through to the Haunted Mansion we have today. It's interesting to take a look at all the ideas Ken Anderson had, and you can kind of start picking out little things and say, oh, this kind of is reminiscent of what we have today, and oh, this is still kind of here, and oh, there was a bride in the attic that no one really knew who who, who she was or where she came from. Well, you can kind of see some of that, the seeds of that idea in Ken Anderson's stories, too. So, um, so you know, I think, I think as he's kept going and taking these ideas to Walt and they weren't quite hitting, you know, the mark. And I don't know, I don't know exactly if Walt really knew what he wanted. I think they were going through the process of figuring out what he didn't really want. And, um, you know, and I think somewhere in there they decided, you know, this doesn't really have to tie into to the pirate story. Let's see if we can tie in some other properties that Disney has. So then Ken Anderson came up with an idea for, well, what if we have 
Um, you know, it's just based on a, on a family, the Bloodmere family. And instead of a sea captain, what if it's, you know, this haunting and you're led through through the mansion by a ghost host? And he called this the lonesome ghost um, when Ken Anderson was planning this. But but it, nevertheless, it's still the idea of um, what if this, you know, disembodied spirit is kind of guiding you as you walk through the house and then they can also kind of tie in the lonesome ghosts which is a disney property right so so you can see ken anderson starting to change his thinking a little bit and and i think we can interpret from that as you know walt kind of taking him in different directions and saying well let's let's look at this and let's look at that because ken anderson was the primary guy um for this haunted house idea which is i think a little unusual well often would put people together that would have conflicting ideas and see what they could kind of come up with. And um, I think, you know, Ken Anderson probably had a, a real interest in trying to put something together and had some ideas and thoughts he wanted to, to go with. And that's probably why he was the, the lead man here. But um, it's interesting to kind of see the things he came up with and how they evolved and changed. And a lot of his ideas were the same, you know, that cyclorama, big dramatic moment and we kind of still have that in the haunted mansion as it is it's a it's a ballroom scene right that's the big scene that you come to as, as a climax and and there's all these amazing special effects and how do they do that you know ken anderson didn't quite have it as a, a pepper's ghost effect but he had this the idea of they're going to come to this parlor and look out the window and it's going to be this big amazing scene and um i think the most famous and most developed version of that he came up with was well what if we have the headless horseman ride by and he comes up from the back and you hear the horse and you see him ride in silhouette across the you know the background and then suddenly he pops up in front of you and you know there's this big drama and it happens to be another property we have that we can capitalize on so um yeah he you know his ideas were constantly evolving changing very quickly i mean he wasn't working on the haunted mansion that long but he came up with you know all, all kinds of new ideas and new stories and new concepts yeah, and we'll we'll come back and touch on bringing the conflicting ideas together and see how that actually plays out because that is one of the things I think that led to the delay in the mansion opening. But just to go back and touch on a couple of the storylines that didn't make it, I think the Sleepy Hollow one is really interesting because you know Anderson sort of goes back to his Fantasyland roots and this idea of using some. Um, you know, already existing source material like the legend of Sleepy Hollow and living events sort of from that perspective and, and having the headless horseman and, and these familiar characters like him and Ichabod Crane. And this was one of the ones, and correct me if I'm wrong, there was a lot of, um, they created a lot of plans, a lot of drawings for this version of it, but he didn't, was it really Anderson who decided rather than sort of um, building on top of this this existing story, we need to create our own backstory because in order to sort of go through the whole legend of Sleepy Hollow, it might not be something that would be necessarily of interest to guess. We could sort of write our own story that would be better for this type of attraction. Yeah, well, you, you want to, you know, if you follow the different ideas Ken Anderson had, it, it kind of always falls back to this this family trauma, right? Some kind of a... A horrible haunting, you know, of a, of a house, a, a kind of a traditional idea. But but he did have he, he kind of comes back to that story. And you can you can almost feel different people telling him, well, let's try this. Well, let's try that. So he'll put things in to his stories and, you know, they may work or not work. And um, the, the Sleepy Hollow idea, I think 
I, I don't know that he ever took that much further than this one dramatic scene. You know, we, we would be touring through this haunted house and suddenly we would come into this big dramatic parlor. And then, you know, the, the lonesome ghost might tell you something reminiscent of, you know, Sleepy Hollow. And suddenly you're thinking of that story, but then that's over and you move on. Um, so, I, you know, some of these things are more obvious to us as Haunted Mansion fans and historians because we have Ken Anderson's plans, right? But but I think there's a lot more to kind of the ideas he came up with. Some of it we may not even ever get a chance to, to see because, um, you know, he worked so fast on this and so quickly and had so many ideas all at once. And then then he was not on the project anymore. But um, yeah, but for sure, the, haunted, the, the idea of bringing Sleepy Hollow into a haunted house probably – I'm going to if I had to guess and I am speculating, maybe wasn't his his idea. Maybe someone suggested, hey, what if we do this? You know, I think, you know, it looks to me from all his ideas, it looks like he probably had the idea of this some kind of family that had some kind of a murder in it or something that that caused this house to be haunted. And um, most of his stories kind of fall default to that some of them are more i think they started a little more gruesome and dramatic and they got a little bit lighter i'm guessing that's probably walt saying well let's try this and let's try that and um he introduced this idea of everywhere you'd go your guide would get attacked by some arms coming out of the walls and um kind of comedic effect you know and so i think those were some ideas that he started to try to add in to change the feel of his story a little bit um but it's usually most of Ken Anderson's um, storylines seem to feel a little dark and, you know, a little, uh, I guess, ominous or, you know, for lack of a better word. Um, and it definitely lightened up later on to, to what we have now. But, yeah, he I, I'm 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 feeling from most of his uh, storylines, mostly kind of a haunt. Uh, a traditional haunting, I think, is what he was basing his ideas on. And then just sticking things in and seeing how they worked. Yeah, you know, the blood mirror matter was one that when you read what sort of the the storyline was supposed to be, it's very dark, you know, and you can see why maybe um, this would have been potentially even off-putting to some guests. And and again, correct me if my recollection of the story is wrong, the the blood mirror manor was supposed to be an old, you know, century-old southern manor that was going to be moved from... Louisiana to Disneyland, but it had this reputation of, of being haunted. And once it was there, the original only the original owners, this this blood family, was going to be like poltergeists, like tormenting the guests. And they created this mythology around it that you know when they were were um, renovating and and transporting the manor here, um, one of the Disney workers was walled into. Well, one of the walls, and that's why they abandoned the project right in the middle of, uh, and he was one of the people that haunted it. I mean, so it really was a very sort of dark, poltergeisty kind of um, scary thing as opposed to, again, what it eventually started to turn into, which was something much, much lighter. Yeah, you know, and it's interesting that that's kind of the moment when they took this interesting take on it where the haunting was going to be more involving this the process of putting this in Disneyland you know it was part of the story was how we brought this house to Disneyland and um, rather than you trying to transport you to oh you're going out to New Orleans and you're going to this house 
you were going to a place in Disneyland, right? So that was an interesting story. I think Walt Disney was even maybe going to record some kind of a spiel for that one at the beginning where you'd hear him talking to you um, through a telephone or something. You, you could pick up headphones or something to listen to him kind of narrate this and he was going to tell you the story of how well we tried to bring this to disneyland and we've had these problems and you know we think it's safe now but you know maybe be on your guard a little bit you know that kind of thing and um but yeah but yeah it, the the darkness of ken anderson's original ideas is is interesting um it, you know and around that time or, or not too long after that is when we heard walt disney go out um and do an interview in the united kingdom where he said well we're collecting ghosts and it's going to be like a retirement home for ghosts. So I, I think they were, you know, in that process, you know, Ken Anderson had these ideas that were just kind of, I, I don't know if it would have been hard to, you know, there's definitely a lot of drama at Disneyland and in Disney stories and Disney movies and Disney films, even back then, you know, Snow White's scary adventures were not necessarily a friendly family, friendly kid ride to go on, you know, even though it was, plopped in the middle of Fantasyland, it was still pretty scary. So I don't think Walt was afraid of the, the drama and the scary, but I think the story was just a little too, um, you know, how do you say it? How do you put that in Disneyland and make it make make it a, have a payoff at the end and an entertaining experience, not just, you know, murder stories? So that was probably kind of tricky to handle. Wasn't there a, a, a version that, uh, I don't know if it was Anderson didn't like or Walt didn't like, where Walt was actually going to be the tour guide? Like they were going to tape Walt sort of taking you room by room. He would sort of been kind of the, the ghost host, which maybe would have uh, lightened it up just a little bit. But that idea obviously didn't get very far either. Yeah, I mean, I'm not sure if they had the idea of Walt being the entire, you know, tour guiding the entire thing or or not. I don't actually remember. I know what you're talking about. And I, that's kind of what I was referring to, where Walt's going to be recorded and be part of this experience. Um, you know, there were a lot of ideas for tour guides. They always had, he can always had the idea that this would be a guided tour. It was never going to be something you just wander through. You know, it was always going to be, and, and, you know, I think the, the most realized version of the Blood Mirror um, manner that he had, put together you were going to have a tour guide plus the lonesome ghost was going to kind of guide you through so you would they would kind of play off each other like you'd hear this this embodied spirit and sometimes you'd see him manifest through special effects and things but you'd be led room to room by a like a, a uniformed guard or guide or construction person or whatever someone that was working on this this house that they brought over to disneyland right so you'd have both of those competing tour guides basically to kind of keep the story moving and um and then the 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 actual human tour guide would be the one that kept getting attacked by these arms coming out of the walls because the story was supposed to be the ghosts don't really want you in here you know it's kind of a dangerous place and so you know maybe we maybe we can scoot you through you know a few at a time and just you know watch yourself (laughs) and um that that's kind of the idea there um but definitely, you know, Ken Anderson had all these all these competing ideas coming at him. And um, Blood Mirror, I think, was probably the most, you know, probably the last thing, the last storyline that he put together um, before they finally thought, you know, this is not quite the right direction. Yeah. Well, and it's interesting because, you know, from the very beginning, it wasn't even it wasn't conflict at the beginning. It maybe was confusion about what this was supposed to be. It wasn't necessarily competing ideas like they just couldn't wrap their heads around what it was supposed to be but you know a year later the mansion appears on the Disneyland map like literally almost 10 years 
before it actually opens. Like, New Orleans Square wasn't going to open for, what, five, six, seven years or so, and it wasn't going to be until a few years after that that they even start building, you know, a facade for it. But they just, I mean, what what do you think was the thinking to put this on the map so early on before they even had a storyline, a design, anything? You know, again, late 50s, early 60s, it's already on the map so long before there were even close. Yeah, well, that's that's an interesting kind of glimpse into how did they make these plans <laughs> and how did they decide what to do, right? Um, so Sam McKim worked on those maps, right? And he also was working with Ken Anderson on the look and the, the design of the first haunted houses. So so a little bit of that you can say, well, you know, he was in tra- he was doing both of those things, so maybe he had a little hopeful thinking and he loved what they were working on and, you know, and they were planning to put in, you know, they also put Liberty or Edison Street on some of those maps that never happened at Disneyland. So there were a few things that made it onto maps that actually never came to be. I think they wanted the maps to be accurate and they had to do them, you know, a year and a half in advance probably or a year early. You know what I mean? So there's probably a lot of things that went into why do things turn up on maps that didn't actually happen. I think with the haunted house that became the haunted mansion, I I think they you know, really thought we're going to have this New Orleans, they didn't call it New Orleans Square at first, the, you know, this New Orleans district or, or whatever of Frontierland down there but next to Adventureland. I think they really thought that might be open by 1959 or 1960, 60, 61, when they first were in 57, you know, making these plans. So, um, you know, Walt's always, always moving on to things and he, he, the Disneyland and WED, enterprises was not the organization it is today you know it was we know the people that were working there a lot of great minds and but you know also it was kind of a let's focus on this well wait a minute let's focus on that and i think you know the i putting together the idea that they also were putting together this pirates stuff and it turned out to be um i think walt disney at walt disney's behest i think it became a larger and larger project than they originally thought another probably walkthrough thing originally they thought it would be this wax museum and you'll go through and you see these little scenes and well you know no let's make it into this bigger thing so i think you take a lot of those things that were expanding and their um, vision was growing for the, the ideas and i think they just kind of jump the i think sam mckim just jumped the gun a little bit putting that in the in the map they probably really thought we're going to get to this stuff in the next year or two and turned out that well pirates turned into a bigger thing and then it also turned out well we're going to divorce the haunted house from the pirates and put it in another area of new orleans square and you know things just kept rolling and then when you throw the world's fair in there in 1964 and 1965 you know so that was from 1962 through 1964 wed was really preoccupied with getting these attractions ready for the new york world's fair so you know you mix all that together and i think they you know had to kind of keep changing plans on the fly and we see little bits of evidence of when how when the timing was for these things by the little mistakes they made um yeah because he didn't even you know he didn't even like some of the design the original some of the original mckim and goff and anderson designs walt didn't even like (coughs) excuse me early on but eventually they come up with this um, antebellum mansion based on really, I guess, heavily influenced by, excuse me, the um, the, the Shipley, the Shipley. house. Yeah, the, the, it was actually, which wasn't in, oddly enough, wasn't in New Orleans, but they found it in Baltimore, correct? <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. And, uh, you know, 
that's one of those things that the Disney company is loath to admit, you know, um, and looking back at it, um, they never really hid the idea that Ken Anderson based the Haunted Mansion on a house in Baltimore. I, I when I go back and read through some of my Disney magazines and things like that, David Mumford was saying that in interviews, but it was really kind of a just, a, oh, yeah, he based it on this house. But, you know, Disney had kind of the idea that there were all these ideas. We went to this house and that house and took, you know, a, a stairway from here and some railing from there and came up with this amazing building. You know, you can understand the idea that the feeling that we want it to feel like this thing, but really Ken Anderson, he did copy almost exactly one, <laughs> one house, one building. In fact, one photograph in this, in this catalog they had in WED, um, it was a catalog of Victorian artwork and, and that type of thing. So you could imagine he was probably looking through it for ideas for furniture and decorating. And he came, he came across this house and he said, that's, that's our haunted house. And, you know, I, I'm not one to, that's a, you know, if you find the perfect place, that's what you right. should do. That's, that's what you should use. And they did it. And it was the perfect place. But when you look at that photograph, like there was, there's no other, right. at least from the, from the exterior, there's no other influence. It's it's this this house that he found in this book, right? So and then yeah, he just drew it right out of the book. Sam McKim kind of painted it with a spooky bayou background, and that's the famous stories about Walt saying, "Well, you know, it. I don't really. Where are we going to have this spooky bayou with all this deterioration in our beautiful park? Like I don't see that place. I'd rather have a nice house, and you can spook up the inside, right? So, um, and that gets to the story you were you were telling about Walt not really being sure about you know are we going to use these these spooky looking cliche houses i don't think so yeah and and so they they at least can agree on what the outside is going to look like right so 61 i guess they start to build the the exterior facade assuming it'll be done for 1963 it'll open up side alongside new orleans square and by 63 like you said the focus wasn't necessarily on finishing the Haunted Mansion, it was moved over to New York because they were worried about the World's Fair. But it wasn't this time that, uh, again, guess it's sort of known this was coming for years, but Marty Sklar put out that that giant sort of poster, that invitation from the Ghost Relations Department inviting the ghosts to um, rent, or they could rent or lease some property inside this home that was uh, you know, being built. Yeah, so that's you could you could kind of mark that as the turning point, right? Because Marty, Marty and Walt were really of a single mind about a lot of things. You know, Marty wrote a lot of Walt's words, right? So they were, you can imagine they had some pretty good conversations about this. And I, and Walt had made that comment fairly not too long before this about how well we're going to have this retirement home. And I think that's basically what Marty went by. I think they decided, you know, it's, we're not going to have this family and this murder stuff and we're going to have it more, a little bit more lighthearted. Like it's just going to be a place where all these ghosts come, which is a little unusual for a haunted house because Ken Anderson and just traditionally a haunted house is usually like you were saying a poltergeist, like one ghost that's tormenting everyone or one horrible thing happened or one event or whatever, you know, but I think Walt was opening it up to, well, we can just have all kinds of, you know, it's not necessarily what happened here is this is where we're gathering this party for ghosts. And, um, and then Marty Sklar kind of distilled that and some of the ideas they had into a, a sign and said, Hey, if you're, if you're one of these ghosts, we got a room for you here, come, come apply. And yeah. And so that sat there with this building for years. 
And it really, I think things, um, part of the reason for the extended delay was because after Walt passed in 66, the mansion was one of the many things, one of the many visions that there was a lot of disagreement, um, infighting, clashing over. And I think really because some of the illusioneers had their own ideas. They weren't really sure what Walt wanted to, to do. And Dick Nunes, who was president of Disneyland at the time, was like, look, you need to create a people-eating kind of guest, uh, kind of system here. They had resolved the idea of at least the type of attraction it should be, realizing that a walk-through museum of the weird tour guy-led thing is not one that would get guests, that the throughput would not be there. But they had the people mover that they developed in the World's Fair for adventure through inner space and things like that. They realized that is at least the mechanism that they could use now all of a sudden sort of becomes this battle, for lack of a better word, to sort of oversimplified the two sides. It's the scary side versus the silly side. And there were really sort of two camps led by Mark Davis on the funny side and Claude Coates on the scary side. Yeah, I mean, so much had happened in those few years, right? Like you mentioned, Walt, Walt passed away, and that's a big deal because I think Walt, at least from what I hear people say on occasion that worked with Walt, um, you know, he would put people that didn't agree together because they would either come up with a better idea by solving their problem or he could come in there and say, well, let's go this way. Right. So um, so it's not really a surprise, you know, and, and we hear lots of stories about the haunted match and particularly I, I kind of suspect when Walt passed away, there were there were other fights happening, <laughs> you know, about about a lot of things, you know, because people just of of high standing in the company, there wasn't a person to break the, the tie. Right. So um, and then you talk about the conveyance that Bob Gurr came up with is the Omnimover, right? And he uh, he he was inspired by that at the New York World's Fair. The audio animatronics had come leaps and bounds at the New York World's Fair. So you get to this point where, like you said, there's kind of competing concepts going on. Um, Claude Coates was from animation. He was a background guy and, and kind of a – he came into Imagineering bringing his – ideas for settings and scenes and backgrounds and atmosphere, right? And then you have Mark Davis, who was probably one of the most famous Imagineers, one of Walt's nine old men, came into Imagineering and Walt brought him in specifically and he tasked him to make Disneyland a happier, funnier place. You know, he 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 had this idea that Disney or Walt had this idea that Disneyland isn't really as entertaining as I want it to be. Can you can you bring the funny, you know? And so, so they both had competing uh, goals to begin with, um, when, when they were working on anything, I, I would think. And so you can imagine when Walt's not there and they both have visions for how this haunted house is going to go, what's going to happen other than some conflict there. I, you know, I personally don't really look at it as, as funny versus scary. I think for me, I kind of look at it more as a conflict of, is it going to be atmospheric and is it going to be about the the house and the setting or is it going to be character driven? Is it going to be about these these um, ghosts that we've called in here and put together and um, that have all these different personalities and ideas? And, you know, which way are we going to go? Because I don't think Claude Coates thought let's let's fill this up with murders and blood and gore. I think he knew, you know, that the ghosts are going to be comical and it's a Disneyland attraction. But I think he just wanted it to be more, you know, more of his vision of this kind of ominous, dark place. And I think Mark thought no Walt wants me to make funny stuff happen so here's here's all these amazing hilarious you know gags that you can choose from let's let's load it up with these things and I think that's kind of where the conflict was and 
um, you know, it was difficult for them to try to navigate. How do we decide who gets to make this decision? I, I sort of got the impression that Mark Davis was going back to what worked and continues to work so successfully with pirates, right? It, it's it pirates, you know, depicted in films was a scary thing the way they, you know, ravaged and plundered and rifled and looted. And but they made it funny. And I think he sort of even that maybe that's why he also was going back to this idea of a, a, a nautical theme, sort of tying it back to what was going on there, wanting to keep it light the way he did it. But Claude Coates was inspired by, you know, he understands it had to be family friendly, but he was inspired by um, horror movies. You know, I, I remember, uh, I guess, probably reading on your site, The Haunting was one of the the movies early on that had inspired some of the um, the special effects and stuff that he wanted to do in there. And he, you know, he wanted it to be more of a haunted house than sort of, for lack of a better term, sort of a goofy version of like a Pirates of the Caribbean. Oh yeah, definitely. I mean, if you if you or if your listeners haven't seen the haunting, the Robert Wise version of the haunting, I think he did that like a year before the sound of he did the sound of music or right after around then. But if you haven't seen that, it's kind of an amazing. You can you can see so much of the haunted mansion in that movie if you watch it and you say, "Wow, they really were inspired by this to kind of create this atmosphere of a house that is really it's the house that's the character. It's the house that's." coming to get you, you know, and so for sure, Claude Coates was inspired by that, you know, to a big degree. And, you know, it's interesting because he did work with Mark on the Pirates very successfully. You know, he he came up with this amazing, adventurous, burning city, right? And it's it's so creative and, and imaginative. And it works so well. They work so, or they appear appear to work so well together in Pirates, you feel like, well, how, how did that not translate as well to the haunted mansion and you know it's hard to it's hard to tell exactly what they each had in mind that were so distinct that they would be in conflict but um definitely Claude Coates was inspired by these uh you know these these big dark um kind of incredible experiences like the haunting film um and, and you can see that in the haunted mansion as it exists and, you know, while there's sort of these somewhat conflicting ideas of what the tone of the mansion should be, guys like Rolly Crump and Yale Gracie are already working together on some of the different effects that they were going to bring in there. And I know you've spoken to, to Rolly in the past. He had come up with some very interesting, very creative, you know, I think he sort of was still thinking about this idea of, either the Museum of the Weird as as part of the attraction or an add-on to the attraction and was designing a lot of miniatures and effects on his own and with um, Yell Gracie that were going to be used, hopefully, in whatever version of the attraction was going to be, right? Yeah, so... So he kind of had two two parts here. He he started on the Haunted Mansion project just more or less as an apprentice to Yale Gracie because Yale Gracie was kind of trying to put together some of these ideas that Ken Anderson had and trying to make them work and see how can we make this actually an amazing effect. And so he was working with Yale on those things and they were trying to, you know, create these just a magical, amazing illusions. And they, they really did come up with some really amazing things um, later on. The World's Fair happened and Rolly was heavily involved in that with Small World and, you know, different things. And he he uh, he came back and was trying to to put together what he thought Walt or what he wanted to suggest to Walt that they look at in terms of the haunted house, because he knew it wasn't really working for Walt. And 
Rolly's opinion was this is just too Halloween. You know, there's mm-hmm. ghosts and goblins and black cats and even the weather vane's a black cat. And, you know, let's just not follow the spider webs in the attic route, but let's just look at this a little bit, bit more surreally. And so I think he wanted some surrealism in there. Um, and you know, he's kind of famously also was inspired by some movies. Um, an old French version of beauty and the beast where there were, um, the, the beast's chamber had human body parts as furniture, you know, arms holding lamps and that kind of thing. And I think he was inspired by some of that and maybe some more mystical, um, metaphysical ideas. Um, so he was trying to come up with that stuff and, and he, you know, he says that Walt liked it. Um, no one really disagrees, you know, with his story that Walt looked at these things and he kind of liked the direction. He just didn't know, you know, we're so far along in this and, you know, we have all these storylines going and I, I just don't know where this, you know, suddenly we have these arms coming out of the wall. You know, I don't know how this is going to work, but, um, but well, I like it. Right. And so, you know, and you got to throw in there, Rolly was a young guy, early mid twenties when this was happening. And, um, the other Imagineers were more peers with Walt, you know? And so he really was kind of the odd man out in Imagineering. He never really, I think was respected as a co cooperative or like a, you know, a, a cohort to some of these Imagineers like Mark Davis. Um, so that's going on a little bit too, you know, and when Walt really liked Rolly, he liked, he thought he was a creative guy and an artistic guy. And I think, you know, the other Imagineers probably didn't quite see well, what's Rolly got that we don't have, you know, so there's a lot of that going on <laughs> and it turns out that he, he, his contributions to the Haunted Mansion were sort of minimalized, even though Walt liked him. Walt said, well, let's let's build a pre-show or, or, you know, something like that. And we'll put your stuff in there and it'll just kind of set the mood and be an atmospheric thing. And then Walt passed away and that never happened. So uh, but even with Rolly, you see some echoes of the things he worked on in in the Haunted Mansion, you know, so some illustrations he did, some ideas he had still kind of the ideas made it into the Haunted Mansion. So they really did work, you know, take everything into account and continually look at what do we have and you know, what are, what's our collection of ideas and plans here and how can we utilize these things to create this attraction? Well, I think too, because his designs were sort of this amalgam of both being, you know, funny, but a little bit creepy, it fit into what eventually the mansion was going to be, which was this compromise of almost to a certain degree, the first part will be scary. The second part will be silly. And if you look at some of, like you said, some of his designs, you know, the chair that he drew, the sort of the face in the chair seems to really be the inspiration for the red chair with the face that you see in in the first section of both mansions. Yeah, definitely. And you can see those arm holding, you know, the torches being held by the arms at the end of the attraction. So he definitely got his 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 things in there. Um, yeah. And I guess that is a good point. He had kind of a good aesthetic and maybe that's why Walt kind of was gravitating towards his ideas and saying, you know, I like this. I don't know exactly you know, how this is going to work with where we're, where the train is going here, but you know, let's, let's look and see what we can do here. And, um, you know, I, I think compromise is a good word. I, I don't, I don't even know if they compromised as much as just kind of finished split, you know, they just split kinda, it in half right <laughs> put the, yeah put the stuff together and just we're done i you know i think the imagineers that worked on the haunted mansion from what i can tell you know most of them are passed away now but i think they were most more or less proud of the attraction maybe didn't 
Sorry, my daughters. It's okay. <laughs> I'm sorry. Um, I think most of them are kind of, um, you know, kind of proud of what they did, but maybe don't see the whole thing as um, exactly what they would have planned. Um, maybe, oh, we like it. I maybe would have done this or that. You know, you know, so, but as fans, we come together and somehow we've just, we've determined as a group that this is like the best outcome that there could have been like chocolate and peanut butter. Somehow they ran into each other. You've seen the old commercial, right. <laughs> you know, like you got your chocolate and my peanut butter, but we love it. Right. So, um, I don't know that that was necessarily as intentional as we hope it might be or wish it could be, you know, but it did work out that way, probably by the brute strength of great ideas. You know, Walt had the best guys working on everything. So whether they had to compromise, whether they didn't quite see it eye to eye, they still had a bunch of great ideas. And, you know, they, you mix them together and it still is a great attraction, um, however you, you slice it. Well, and I think to a certain degree, you could almost argue that the delay in opening the attraction may have actually proved as a benefit, right? Because they couldn't, they really never hit on what they wanted. But to use your your peanut butter and chocolate analogy, that's sort of what happened, right? So the delay gives them the advantage of saying, hey, this Omnimover system thing that on the Magic Skyway, that works. That'll, that'll eliminate all the issues with the walk-through attra- walk attraction. It'll have a steady um, traffic flow. We can also control as Imagineers exactly what we want them to see and when, right? So to a certain degree, it'll satisfy Walt's desire to have this walkthrough, but eliminates all the issues with speed and stairs and darkness and things like that. And it also allows them to come together and maybe the beginning of the attraction's a little bit scarier, right? You've got the the hanging in the in the stretching room. Then it gets a little sillier in the graveyard. And then at the end, you got that little hint of, you know, hurry back and a little bit scarier again with little Leota as a goodbye. So you're right. The, the delay almost helped, you know, accidentally to a certain degree of allowing these ideas and these um, seemingly disparate concepts to really come together. Yeah. You know, and I, I don't know if we can ever know for sure how Walt, you know, what was his what did he really have in mind as this Haunted Mansion was being developed? You know, that's that's the one missing piece here. You know, what, what he couldn't have just been floating through letting people throw things at him. Right? <laughs> there was feedback. And, you know, that's that's what I'm all, you know, Haunted Mansion students and fans always trying to figure out what did Walt think. You kind of think, well, he probably put this on hold um, shortly after they built that big mansion because I think, you know, he knew the different things they were trying to accomplish for the World's Fair. And I think Walt probably knew, you know what, this is going to affect all of Disneyland and everything we do moving forward. So why don't we pause everything, really develop these this audio animatronic um you know, let's take it to the next level because Bob Gurr and Lincoln, like he was coming up with you know, pirates would not be the same. It would literally have been a, a wax museum with maybe moving arms and legs, right? If it wasn't for these developments that Bob Gurr did to come up with Mr. Lincoln to create that auctioneer scene. So I think similar, similarly with the Haunted Mansion, I think Walt probably had in mind, you know, we're going to we're going to just stop. We're going to really develop some ideas and, and move forward in our technology. And then we'll come revisit this and make the best idea and bring the best ideas forward. Yeah, you know, the question, we I'm sure you've heard it a million times. What would what do you think Walt would think of this? What would Walt think of Epcot? What would Walt think of DCA? You know, you could almost ask, what do you think Walt would think of the Haunted Mansion, right? He wanted 
the mansion to be, you know, very, he didn't want it to be decrepit on the outside, but on the inside, it looks run down and it looks, you know, maybe a little bit different than it was on the outside. Is that what he had in mind or is it not? Um, You know, if you rode through it today, one wonders what he might think. I think at the very, uh, at, at a very bare minimum, I'm sure he would be incredibly impressed at not just the the storytelling and the artwork and things like that, but some of the effects that they used in there. You know, Yale Gracie, when he worked um, on the some of the, the effects too, he was sort of um, was back and forth over the the scary versus the silly. But they created the Pepper's Ghost effect for the ballroom, and didn't they build? like a full-scale room in order to, like very early on, to show the Pepper's Ghost effect, how it would work? Yeah, they, they actually, Yale and Rowley, they actually built a full haunted a tra- haunted house on the Burbank lot, and they would, um, and I didn't actually know this until recently, but they had a full two-story haunted house that they put into a soundstage that people could walk through and um, get a lot of the different effects shown to them and demonstrated and they would try different things in there and some of it was this pepper ghost stuff i don't think they ever came i don't think they demonstrated a, a giant amazing ballroom scene i don't know that for a fact but i don't believe they had the 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 glass available to do that on the on the lot um but they definitely had all the ideas and concepts. You know, Walt, he did kind of have an idea what this was going to be like and the magic of it, because a lot of those effects were pretty nailed down by 1965. You know, in 1965, there's that famous Disneyland show, Showtime television show where they showed, you know, all the great stuff happening in 1965. And Walt was showing Julie Ream all the Haunted Mansion special effects. And a lot of that was stuff that Yale Gracie and Rolly Crump and Mark Davis had already planned for the Haunted Mansion. So some of this stuff was, I think, Walt had a good idea. You know, when people ask me, what would Walt have thought? Well, they, I mean, <laughs> the easy answer is, well, no one, no one knows what Walt would have thought. But, you know, I kind of feel like I don't know that Walt Disney always made the decisions for Disneyland based on do I like this? I think he had his best people come up with an idea and come up with the best idea they could put together. And I think he judged things by how is it working in Disneyland? Mm-hmm. So I think he would have looked back and seen how popular and how, you know, the, even back in 1969, like two weeks after the Haunted Mansion opened, they had a record attendance. What was it? 10,000, 11,000 people came to Disneyland, just Disneyland. There's no there's no um, Space Mountain. There's no Big right. Thunder. There's no Indiana Jones. But there still isn't more people than you have on a busy day at Disneyland today to to ride this haunted house. You know, and you go back to what you were saying about how did people tell them each other about you know, how how did the social media work back then that two weeks after it opened, everyone wanted to go on this attraction? And, um, you know, people were in line four hours, five hours to go on the haunted house. And, you know, I think Walt would have looked back and I think based on the success, he would have been pleased with what happened. I don't know that he necessarily would have put together these kind of compromise ideas. I think he would have said, well, let's do this and let's do that. But I think at the end of the day, I think a lot of what he decided about things was based on how is how is it working in Disneyland and what do people do people like it, and um, so I think he would have been impressed by that. Well, I think Walt too trusted in the people. Look, he's surrounded by he surrounded himself by the people who were the very best at what they did, even if they didn't know that himself. There was a lot of times, a lot of stories where, look, Exitentio is a great example, right? They, he's an animator. They bring him over to Wed as a scriptwriter. And he's like, wait, I'm not a scriptwriter. He goes, well, no, you're a storyteller. And that's what you need to do to tell stories. So when he had this idea 
of um, uh, of having, you know, for example, somebody like X working on it. He trusted in him to be able to come up with a storyline, with lyrics and things like that. Look, Yale Gracie was the guy when it came to visual effects. He was sort of the go-to person, right? He started off um, on Faye, like he, he started off as an art director, right? Wasn't he art director of Fantasia? And then eventually yeah. came over before he came to Wed. Yeah, yeah, he was definitely working on that kind of stuff back when he was with animation. And, you know, the interesting thing about Walt Disney is he had to be – I think he knew more about his employees than they ever thought he would be care to know or be interested in knowing. You know, he knew Gail Gracie was this kind of – also, besides that, he just liked to tinker around with stuff. You know, he just liked to kind of – put little inventions together and make stuff. And I think he used that knowledge along with what he did for the studio to decide what he was going to do for him at WED. Same thing with Rolly. He knew Rolly liked these little delicate sculptures and, you know, mobiles and things. And so when he pulled him from animation, which Rolly hated, you know, to WED, I think he kind of had an idea, you know, early on Rolly was creating this, this, sculpture for a small world at the New York World's Fair because Walt kind of knew. Similar with X, you know, I think X wanted to be a journalist. I think he kind of somewhere, somehow Walt kind of knew, hey, he he would like to write or he, earlier in his life, he, he had an idea that I could be a writer. So time goes by, he's in his job as a, you know, at, at the studio and Walt says, why don't you try writing over here? And, you know, at first he's thinking, well, I, you know, I don't, I don't do that. And Walt said, well, I think maybe you could, you know, so I think Walt put paid so much attention, you know, I think that's, all, of course, another one of the things that made him such an amazing leader of these people. Um, he really knew who they were and what they could do more than they even thought they probably were showing him. Yeah. And I think X, I think X's work on this may have helped to um, set the tone for the mansion too. You know, again, there was this conflict of funny, scary, funny, scary. I think when he wrote Grim Grinning Ghosts, and having that be the single song that's played throughout the attraction, save for the Here Comes the Bride part, um, sets sets a, um, a common tone and theme across the board, um, which I think helped to sort of bring all these uh, sometimes contradictory elements together. Yeah, I mean, the importance of the script probably can't be overstated um, because you did have some really funny ghosts in the graveyard and then some spooky, like an endless hallway with a ghost candle floating in it. Like, how do you make those things work in one experience? You know, when you just look at those very disparate ideas and feelings and, you know, it's, you really have to have something incredibly effective to tie this all together and make you feel like, yeah, there's, this is one thing. It's this guy's house. And he's kind of saying, yeah, sometimes this scary stuff happens, but everyone just wants to enjoy themselves, you know, and if it wasn't for that, it would be very difficult to kind of feel kind of a cohesive experience here. Yeah. And I think it wasn't a Tony Baxter who said that it, that um, this was one of the, the ways that it helped sort of unite this, Look, this attraction came with so many different conflicting ideas, but it helped really create it a, a three-act play out of it, right? The the first act, it's, you know, the anticipation of what is going on inside. And then uh, I think he said sort of Madame Leo to help sort of separate acts two and act uh, three as well. So it ends up all working out. And that was one of the things that may have really helped tie it all together, too. Oh, definitely. And I mean, I think the three act play is definitely um, kind of looking back at what happened and dissecting it. I don't think they 
really put that into play as as a plan. But that's all, another reason why it's really effective, right? Because it's it's put together as a very good three act play. And I think, yeah, Exitensio ties that together. Even Buddy Baker, who wrote mm. this this little melody, right? It's a simple little melody, and people don't realize you hear that in every every scene. You hear that. At the beginning, a parlor organ plays it. You hear it in the wind when you're waiting to get on the dune buggies and there's wind blowing. If you listen, it's blowing in the tune of the Grim Groaning Ghost's melody. And then, and same thing in Madame Leota's room, you know, there's these weird sounds. But if you listen, they're playing the, the, the tune that he wrote to this Grim Groaning Ghost. So all through the Haunted Mansion, this theme kind of subliminally ties everything together. So... Yeah, I mean, you know, we talk about, we, you know, it's such a big history. You focus on something. You focus on Ken Anderson or you focus on Mark and Claude. But really all these parts are so important to each other, you know, to tie together to make this experience what it really is. Yeah, you know, you can look, it's almost one of these um, perfect accidents, you know, because of the way things look. Even to the certain degree, you can almost argue that the Hatbox Ghost, right, this legendary um, uh, effect that Yale Gracie worked on, that only worked for a couple of weeks, right? They couldn't actually, they never got it right. All of a sudden, literally just disappears. Like, right, tell me if I'm wrong. Like, they said everything disappeared. Like, the molds, the figures, the the drawings, the figure himself disappears after only being in the attraction for a couple of weeks because it never worked right and the dew bunkies were getting too close. And then when it, when it comes back, you know, years later, um, what was it, sort of early 2015? 15 I think it comes back yeah um, it helps to sort of complete the story and bring that again that, that mystery and that legend of it that the mansions had from the very beginning yeah I mean well everyone's always looking for how, how what's going to happen with the haunted mansion next you know and always there's something <laughs> something comes up next and yeah they brought that the hatbox ghost you, you know um there's a lot made out of how it vanished. I mean, it, it really wasn't a lot to it. The, the the schematics for it still exist. And it was this head, which they didn't lose the mold for the head because it's the same head as the hitchhiker's ghost. The same heads are used for the hitch, the hitch, one of the tall hitchhiking ghosts and then the hatbox ghost. So they just kind of, it was basically just kind of, I don't know, a, a very simple frame with a lot of cellophane wrapped around it to look sort of ghostly, a cloak, and this effect happening, right, where where the lights would turn on and off. And I think, I don't know if it was, you know, we all talk about how well it didn't work because the light was, you know, maybe that's probably true. But I think Mark Davis overall just wasn't so impressed with how how it came out at uh, based on what he kind of designed and created and how it looked in the attraction. I don't think he thought the whole thing is just not really working. So let's get rid of it. Um, but anytime something like that happens, like it becomes a myth, right? Especially with a haunted house and a haunted mansion. So everyone, you know, ooh, the hat box ghost. And there were, again, no social media. We couldn't tweet that we saw it. So <laughs> did it really exist? Was it really there? Even Disneyland didn't know for sure that it was in there for the public to see. I think they knew it was installed and, I think Disneyland mostly believed the people that speak for Disneyland up through the years that it was just taken out early on. They tested it and didn't really like it. If it wasn't for, you know, Doom Buggies, I, someone sent me a picture out of the blue. Someone said, you know what? I was looking through some of my sister's old snapshots from a trip she took to Disneyland in 1969. She was there when they opened the Haunted Mansion. I think you might be interested in this. And it's a photograph of the, of the Hatbox Ghost in the attic. And if it wasn't for I've heard, I've had Dis, even Disney the archives contacted me for a copy of that because they didn't no one has had a picture mm -hmm. of it inside the haunted mansion they they didn't actually believe it actually was in in 
inside when people could ride it up until a couple of years ago when, you know, a few years ago when it went on to Doom Buggy. So, yeah, it was there. Yeah, I would guess days, maybe a week. You know, no one knows, but not long enough for a lot of people to say, oh, yeah, I saw that. So it couldn't have been that long. And um, but that's that's the perfect basis for, like you're saying, for a, a new story some what 45 years later so um yeah they did a great job and you know the new the new hatbox ghost is not even remotely you know it's based on the kind of look of what mark davis created um but it looks a lot more you know robust and like a, a character than the original one probably did and um they they really hit that out of the ballpark i mean i, I don't know a single person that told me they saw that and didn't think it was the most amazing thing yeah. they could have yeah yeah it's an incredible effect um to this day and i think that you're right i think it, it helps um complete the story keep, keep that that mystery and the legend of the mansion going on um you know look it takes 18 years from you know Walt's original ideas, six years after they build the building, seven million dollars in, in sixty nine dollars, which is like forty five fifty million dollars today, to finally get this open. Uh, from a, a Walt Disney World perspective, it was one of the very few, or maybe the only attraction created both for Disneyland and Walt Disney World at the same time. So, on our side, on the Walt Disney World side, this was like the first attraction that was ready. And they basically had it done, locked the door, and then kept it closed for a year because they worked on it so early. Because they were sort of building it um, almost simultaneously with with what they were doing from Disneyland. And I think when it does finally open in in Disneyland in August of 69, right, we're celebrating the the anniversary of this month, um, the guest response was, you know, there were technical issues. Some people wanted scarier. Some people were disappointed. Some people... You know, didn't understand the funny part, but I think they, as as guests, they eventually were able to very quickly reconcile the scary and the funny and understand that this haunted mansion was not like, you know, a scary house. It was exactly what Walt wanted, which was an attraction that families could ride and enjoy together. Yeah, I couldn't say that better myself. Definitely, um, you know, definitely it was a success. And yeah, I mean, there's always going to be people that say this or say that. But um, critically and as far as most of the, you know, the reviews from the 69 that I've read and people talking about it in newspapers and and that kind of thing, I think, um, you know, it was widely hailed as as one of the most amazing things Disneyland had ever done. Yeah, and, uh, you know, look, there's obviously so much more about the mansions. There's so many more legendary Imagineers that worked on it. We never even talked about Blaine Gibson or Harriet Burns or some of the other people that worked on it. Uh, The continuing legacy of the mansion, I don't mean the Eddie Murphy Haunted Mansion movie. I mean, (laughs) whatever happened to the Guillermo del Toro movie that he announced, what was it, in 2010? Um, Yeah. which, Which didn't the image that they used on... The promo poster have the hatbox ghost on it. It did, and he, you know, I've I've actually spoken to Guillermo del Toro very very briefly about <laughs> this. Um, and you know, I mean, he he is a huge haunted mansion fan. I think he would love nothing more than to work on a haunted mansion movie. He did a lot of preliminary work creating a character of the hatbox ghost. I know Doug Jones, who he uses a lot in a lot of his movies and things, was kind of fitted in a costume of sorts. You know, to kind of 
learn to be a hatbox ghost and try to discover the character. So, you know, they got to that point. Um, that was probably for pre-production con, you know, pre- ideas and that kind of thing. Whether or not this will ever happen, no, nobody knows. You know how movies are. Um, it's, you know, especially a studio like Disney, the movies they make now are based on years of marketing and how, how can we roll this out? And well, we have to do all these animated films for the foreseeable future where we're making those as live movies. And we have a couple pirates movies in the, in the works <laughs> and star Wars. So, you know, you can almost feel it at being on whether it's the best idea in the world or not kind of on, on a holding pattern waiting for the superheroes to clear out of the way. Maybe, you know, you know, I don't know, but, um, he wants it. Guillermo wants to do it. So, I have my fingers crossed. I mean, that's the best I can say. I, I think there's a lot of people that would want him to uh, to make this movie in only the way the Guillermo del Toro could. But look, Jeff, there is there's still so much more we can talk about the mansion. We could, you know, talk about almost like a virtual tour walkthrough and some of the other myths and and stories about it. Maybe we'll revisit the mansion again in the future. I, I would love to have you come back and chat on this some more. Sure, I'd love to. I'd love to do that. In the meantime, I know that they can find you at doombuggies.com. Your book is called the... Now, wait, I have... I literally have four different versions of books that you've written. (laughs) I've got The Secret of Disney's Haunted Mansion, like two different thicknesses of that. I've got The Unofficial History, The Unauthorized Story. Which is the one that is currently So let let me... Allow me to clear this up for for the listeners. So, yeah, maybe this was... So I I had written a couple convention chat books that I didn't really mean to be that big of a deal, you you know, just to kind of have something to, to... to distribute, you know, for fans of the Haunted Mansion. And I was doing convention talks and things. Really, I've only written one book and it's it's progr- progressed along a scale. So all of those books have the same material and more and more and more until you get to the book I published on Theme Park Press a couple years ago. And that's called The Unauthorized Story of Walt Disney's Haunted Mansion. Um, it's in its second edition now, but it's, you know, the same book just with I added 5,000 words last year and pumped it up a little bit. And um, it's now... Yeah, yeah. I, I think if you are interested in the Haunted Mansion and in wet Imagineering back in the day, a little bit of intrigue about some of the conflicts between the Imagineers, um, I think you'll like this book. I love this book. It's I love it so much. I have four different versions of it. Um, <laughs> and, and you've got great stories in here. You've got uh, what I love is that you have a lot of your own personal interactions with uh, some of the people that you've spoken to over the years. You've got photos. You've got diagrams. I will put a link in the show notes to where they can get this on Amazon. They can also obviously find you at doombuggies.com. Uh, anywhere else they could find you online or on social? Uh, yeah. So, well, my, my Twitter is doombuggiesweb. So you can you can follow doombuggies on doombuggiesweb. We're on Instagram, also on Facebook, Facebook page for doombuggies. Um, and I also, you can hear me every Monday on the Mousestalgia podcast. So um, first listen to Lou, then you can check us out if you want. Um, and that's, yeah, that about covers it. Awesome. Yeah, the you guys over at Nostalgia have been doing great stuff for a long time. I have been referring and recommending you, um, especially if you are a Disneyland fan. I, I think nobody does Disneyland the way you guys do. I will put links to all this stuff in the show notes this week. Uh, Jeff, Chef, Chef, Jeff, whatever you prefer to be referred <laughs> to, uh, thank you so much. It's only It's taken us way too long to do this. I promise it won't take nine years before we do it again. It has been too long, and it's been my pleasure. Thank you, Lou. Thank you, buddy. Ah, there you are. 
And just in time, there's a little matter I forgot to mention. Beware of hitchhiking ghosts. <laughs> It's time for our Walt Disney World Trivia Question of the Week, where I invite you to test your knowledge to see how well you know the history of Walt Disney World, but also maybe see how well you pay attention to the details, sometimes in what you see, sometimes in what you hear. And if you think you know the answer, you can enter via our online form for a chance to win a Disney prize package. But before we get to this week's question, we're going to go back, review last week's, and select our winner. So last week we were talking about the closing of attractions like Great Movie Ride and Ellen's Energy Adventure, all originally known as Universe of Energy, and I figured we would take the Wayback Machine and go back to when Universe of Energy first opened. I was tempted to ask you who was the original sponsor, but I knew that Exxon was going to be too easy, because you'd also find it on show 199, but I thought while it was originally known as the Universe of Energy, and now or was known as Ellen's Energy Adventure, for a very very short period of time, like just a couple of weeks, it had a different name. And the question last week was to tell me what was that third, that middle name that was around for a short period of time for Ellen's Energy Adventure. Again, hundreds of you entered, got this one correct or got very creative and knew that Ellen's Energy Crisis was actually the very short-lived name. When the pavilion closed in mid-January 1996, for a refurbishment, it was supposed to go down for about five or six months or so, but because of some other issues and things like World of Motion already being closed to uh, get ready for Test Track, they decided to reopen it during the busy summer season using the old films without some of the new ones in, as long as with some new infrastructure which had already been installed. So while it was sort of a mishmash of the old and the new, on June 1st, 1996, Ellen's Energy Crisis opened. That was open just for a few weeks to get through the busy summer season. Eventually, Ellen's Energy Adventure opened on October 1st, 1996. Anyway, I took all of the correct entries, randomly selected one. And again, last week you were playing for the 102 Ways to Save Money for an At Walt Disney World book. All seven of my virtual audio walking tours of the Magic Kingdom, both of which you can find on the shop at www.radio.com and Amazon. You can also get a WW Radio Magic Band cover, a bunch of stickers, and the new WW Radio Pop Socket phone holder and stand. And last week's winner, randomly selected, is Billy Garnett. So, Billy, I have your shipping information because you did use the form. I will get your prize package out to you right away. If you played last week and didn't win, that's okay because here's your next chance to enter in this week's Walt Disney World Trivia Challenge. So we're talking about the mansion. I love the mansion. Let's stick with the mansion for this week's trivia question, specifically over in Walt Disney World. Because in Walt Disney World, there's a story that's a little, maybe even a lot different than the one both at the exterior and interior of the Haunted Mansion in Disneyland. In fact, in Walt Disney World, there is a storyline about the Haunted Mansion that explains why it's haunted. So your question this week is to tell me, in Walt, I'll even tell you where to find it. How's that? In Walt Disney World, according to the story as told on the Liberty Bell Riverboat, why is the haunted mansion in Walt Disney World haunted? You have until Sunday, August 20th at 11.59 p.m. to go to www.radio.com, click on this week's podcast, use the form there, 
fill it out. Tell me, why is the Haunted Mansion Walt Disney World Haunted according to the Liberty Bell Riverboat storyline? If you get it correct and you are the randomly selected winner, you will get the book, the tours, the Magic Band cover, the stickers, and the pop socket. So good luck and have fun. And hurry back. That's going to do it for this week's show. Thank you again so much for taking the time to join me this and every week. Big thanks to everybody who came out to Epcot Center the other day for our meet of the month and final ride on the great movie ride and first ride on the Mission Space Green attraction. Great to get to see so many people enjoying and reminiscing about the great movie ride one final time. If you missed it or if you love or missed the great movie ride, I have something I took I want to share with you. I did a front row 360-degree VR video on one of the final rides of the Great Movie Ride. You can find that as well as other videos and 360 videos that you can watch. You don't need any special equipment. You can watch on your desktop, on your phone. It's a unique, fun, interactive way, not just to sort of wander through the parks, but enjoy some attractions as well. Again, you can find all those at facebook.com slash radio. Make sure you like the page, share the videos, and turn on notifications, especially when I go live from the parks as well as long as we're talking about social i am at lou mangello on facebook instagram pinterest and twitter as well i'd love to hear from you not just on the facebook page your thoughts about the haunted mansion or any of the attractions or things that are going on in disney but i'd love to hear from you as well so if you have a question maybe you want me to answer on the show you can email me lou at wwradio.com or call the voicemail be heard on the air Share your thoughts about Ellen, great movie ride, changes coming to the parks, or your love of the Haunted Mansion at 407-900-9391. If you missed our last meet of the month, don't worry. We do it every single month as well as other special events. The best way to find out about what is coming up and when is to go to the Facebook page. Click on the events tab there. I will have October, uh, September's, sorry, September's meet of the month, probably earlier in the month before I leave on our Adventures by Disney to China. Stay tuned for more information. And also, if you want to come and join us on future group events like our cruise to Alaska next year, which I cannot wait for, uh, other things we have going up, you can find all of those there. Also, if you can't get out to World or Land or come with us on one of our cruises, I try and do a number of meetups on the road, as it were, as I travel to uh, speak or for business and things like that. Speaking of which, if I could maybe come to speak to your conference, your business, or even your school, as schools are starting up, career days are starting to happen, I'd love to be able to help you any way that I can. If you go to lumangelo.com, you can find some of the different topics that I can talk about, or I can also custom craft something for whatever your event might be. And more importantly, I would love to be able to help you and give back to you what you give to me, which is the ability to do what you love every single day. So if I can help you turn that passion maybe into your profession with personal one-on-one mentoring or group coaching, again, visit, visit lumangelo.com. Don't forget, too, I'm also hosting my Momentum Workshop Weekend in Walt Disney World this October 14th through the 16th. It is a two-day, small, interactive workshop that will really sort of help you get from where you are to where you want to be. There are only seven spots left. Going to have a full speaker announcement coming up probably this week, including Lee Cockrell, the former vice president of operations at Walt Disney World, Duncan Wardle, the former vice president of innovation and creativity for the entire Disney company, and other people who have sort of walked the walk and will be able to help you make a real change. For more information, go to lumangelo.com. You can click on the Momentum tab. 
right up top there. Thanks, as always, to Becky Mankin from Mouse Fan Travel, my official and recommended travel provider. It's who I love. It's who I trust. More importantly, it's who I use and recommend. You can visit them at mousefantravel.com and go to Celebrations Press to get your latest issue of Celebrations Magazine. And as always, my friend, and you are my friend, whether you whether we have met yet or not, and you show it to me so many ways on social and in person, I, I appreciate you so much. But if you like the show, and I hope that you do, all I ask is that you please help spread the word, let others know about it, tweet out that you're listening, share links to this or your favorite episode on Facebook, and if you can, take just 30 seconds, that's all it takes, to leave a re- rating and review over on iTunes. I want to thank some recent reviewers like Hustino, who says, Lou's great. His enthusiasm for what he does is infectious, and his knowledge is second to none. Thank you. He has an unmatched ability to tell a story about what he loves each week. C.S. Graham says... He gets it. Like, Lou gets it, and it's wonderful. Jedi James 32 says Lou is so well-informed and so passionate about Disney that you can feel it every second of the podcast. It's been a truly amazing experience to listen to Lou follow his dream and create the life and the business he always wanted while giving us what may simply be the best podcast out there. Period. End of sentence. I think that's a drop-the-mic moment right there, Jedi James. Thank you. Thanks to everybody else. Again, who has rated and reviewed the show. If you're not really sure how or where to go do it, go to wdwradio.com slash iTunes. There's instructions and a link right there. Speaking of thanks, I also want to quickly thank all of the new members of the WDW Radio Nation family. Again, I cannot thank you enough for the love and the support that you continue to share. And I'm and I want to welcome you officially into our growing nation family, including Chris Blagg, Andrew Merritt, Kristen Blake, the Whitsons, and longtime friend Ryan Hurley. I appreciate all of you guys. If you want to learn more about what the nation is, more importantly, how you can help the show, you can visit www.radionation.com. It'll also tell you about some of the things that you can get every month, like scavenger hunts, care packages from the parks, our live video group calls that we do together, personalized magic band covers, all kinds of logo gear. And again, don't forget that a portion of your proceeds do go to the Dream Team Project that directly benefits the Make-A-Wish Foundation of America to help children with life-threatening illnesses and their families come to enjoy a place that we love so much. Thank you again so much for your time and your attention and your love and friendship and support that you continue to show me so many ways over the years. I appreciate you so much. I am grateful for the life I'm able to lead and share with you simply because of you and the things that you give to me in return. So, you know, all those things that that you have always wanted to do or dreamt of doing or thought of doing or said you were going to go do, you should go do them. Like start now, start tomorrow, start take small, start taking small steps. And if I can help you in any way to get from where you are to where you want to be, let me know. It's the least I can do to say thank you. So I hope that this is the beginning of your very best week ever. Thanks again. Have a great week. See ya. Hey, Lou, this is Melanie calling from McAllen, Texas. I want to thank you so much. I'm the one who gave you the idea or mentioned the idea of doing the souvenir collectible show. Um, and I think it's awesome that you did it. Um, you're so great to your fans giving suggestions for your show. And I'm, I just loved this show. Um, I wanted to call and let you know about a couple of the souvenirs that I loved um, when I was visiting Disney both now and when I was younger. Um, there's one thing that I like to collect now. It's not pins, but it's 
pens. One of my favorite things to collect is pens from not only the parks, but the hotels and the different attractions. They change over the years. So just like pens, um, it's impossible to collect the entire set. I like that they're inexpensive. I've got some free ones from the hotels. I've gotten, you know, the couple of dollar pens from the different attraction areas. And then, of course, the $10, $15 pens that have the LEDs in them. The neat thing about them is they're also very small, so you don't need a lot of space to use them. And I get to use them every day, just like your mug. So every time I'm, you know, jotting a note or something, I get to look down and, and think about that memory or where I got them. And then you can replace the ink, so they're constantly usable. So I love my Disney pens, love, love, love those. Um, the other thing, and the reason why I have this idea, is back when we used to go in, like, the late 80s, early 90s, we used to collect these souvenir candy dishes. They were not dishes, but they were, like, they were in different shapes. So they would have, like, cube squares, and then they would have, like, the, the Disney logo embossed on them or the, the park embossed on them. Sometimes they would have the faces of the characters, so, like, a Mickey face or a Goofy face. And inside these plastic containers were loose candies, like runs or uh, jelly beans. They had these sugar crystal things they had many many jawbreakers and when we would go to disney we would go to the souvenir shop in the lobby of the hotel and we would get like three or four of them put them on our nightstand and they became like this community snacking station um and so we would basically snack on the candies the entire trip and i i used to collect the boxes and i guess i've lost them over the years i have searched on ebay for them and i can't find them so I'm starting to wonder if they even exist or if I completely just hallucinated in them, but I thought maybe, you know, somebody would remember what I'm talking about and or know where I could find them. So they were these plastic boxes. Um, anyway, absolutely love your show. I've been a fan since the very, very, very first show. I think you know which one I'm talking about. Um, it's every Disney fan's dream to get to talk about Disney all day long, and that's exactly what you get to do. And I guess the next best thing is getting to listen to you talk about Disney all day long. So thanks for everything you do. Thanks for being here for the fans. Congrats on 500. Bye. Hi, Lou. I enjoy listening to your uh, podcast every week, and I was calling in reference to uh, show number 491. Uh, I collect anything from Disney Antiques to uh, theme park memorabilia. Um, I have some old, um, very old Disney stuff, and uh, we were in Disney in June of this year and got to ride the last, you know, the the, uh, great movie ride for the last time, and... uh, the kids, my kids really enjoy uh, going to the parks and looking at everything and enjoying it. So um, keep up the good work. Thank you. Bye-bye. What's up, Lou Mongello and WDW Radio Nation? Uh, my name is Drewski. I am uh, calling all the way from Irving, Texas, and I just recently finished listening to podcast number 491, talking about top thing, 10 things to collect at Walt Disney World. And I must admit, while I have not actually collected anything at Walt Disney World, because I haven't actually gone yet, yet, planning a big trip with the family in a couple of years. But um, there have been a lot of things from Disney I have loved to collect over years. Um, the last couple of years before they were discontinued, I actually was a big collector of all the Disney Infinity figures. Um, when the 3.0 set came out, my father-in-law got it for me for Christmas, and I was instantly addicted. So I wound up... Uh, 
collecting a good majority of the figures, actually all of, of the 3.0 figures. I'm still trying to work on the 2.0 and the 1.0s, even though they're all discontinued, still trying to get them. But as weird as this may sound, one thing I've always loved to collect have been the Disney movies. Now, when I was a kid, my parents used to buy me every new VHS that came out, so they worked on their Disney collection, so I'd have stuff to watch. But uh, nowadays I'm getting older, and my wife and I are thinking about having a family in the next couple of years. We have been, excuse me, walking to the store as well, too. We have been collecting DVDs and Blu-rays for us, so we can extend our library. That way we can watch more movies together and watch stuff with family in the hopefully near future. So, yeah, very good stuff. But uh, I just wanted to say thank you. Uh, thank you very much for all the wonderful podcasts and shows, and I hope to one day, hopefully in the near future, finally get to shake your hand and talk to you some more. So thank you for all that you do, Lou. I will see you guys next time. Peace. Hello, Lou Mangiello. This is Ron Collins from Bowling, Illinois. Uh, I'm calling on episode 491 about collectibles. Uh, my family and I each have our own collectibles, of course. Uh, my beautiful wife, Donna, she loves to collect postcards from the different theme parks. When we lived in California, we went to Disneyland. She collected the postcards of the different attractions and land. Uh, my son, Andrew, likes to collect the fast page or in long years, Benny. He's got two or three books full of them. Uh, on our last Disney World trip, we took last May, uh, my son, Charlie, like and wanted to collect all the different pins from around Epcot, from all the different lands. Even some that I guess that were not available anywhere else. He was able to pick up there, so we got quite a collection of those. My daughter Tiffany, she loves Tinkerbell, so she collects everything Tinkerbell that she can. I myself, I grew up in Southern California and went to Disneyland uh, as often as I could. And over the years, I tried to collect as often as I could those big fold-out maps that were uh, drawn. Uh, they would change every couple, three years. They would have either characters or it had all the different attractions from Disneyland. And uh, that was one thing I've always liked to look at over the years. Uh, I would look at it and see what attractions have gone, what is there now. And it was always fun to collect the different maps so that way I could see the time progression over the years. I really enjoy the uh, Walt Disney World radio podcast. Uh, you guys did really help us out on our recent trip last May and Memorial Day uh, after we won our trip and were able to go. Uh, keep up the great work. Thanks. Bye. Good morning, Jello. It's Charlene Yegi from West Seneca, New York, and it's a beautiful morning. I'm walking Chip and Cogsworth. Yes, Chip and Cogsworth are our puppies, our dash hounds, and we are now 28 days away from California, 30 days away from Disneyland, and you are 34 days away from Shanghai in that other country where Becky's not going to eat, but I'm sure you'll get her to eat a few different foods, and I can't wait to hear all the trip reviews. I am going to post some pictures. There was an awesome idea about all the collections. I have so many collections, so, oh, my goodness. I think I sound like you, Lou. Um, we have a lot of different things that we, we've collected over the years, either figurines with my mom from 1980 from our first trip or the 
cookbooks for me to cook or the um, DVDs from over the years. It's just amazing how many collections we have. Uh, we love to watch movies and that, especially on the rainy cold nights in uh, western New York. So I will talk to you all real soon. Have a wonderful, magical weekend, and stay safe and stay positive. Love ya. Hugs. certificate if you decide to join us. Make final arrangements now. We've been dying to have you. <laughs>